So now we're going to be turning, of course, to the book of Acts. We are getting ever closer to the ending of this book, which I'm uh, somewhat feeling accomplished about it. We're making our way through, but I've really been enjoying learning uh, all of the details of the story here. So we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 23, all the way, it's kind of a long passage, all the way to the end of chapter 26. And so for the past several weeks now, we've here been working through the story, of course, of Paul's journey, really the last several chapters back to really chapter 20 have been sort of one very continuous part of the story. Paul coming to Jerusalem, Paul being captured in Jerusalem, Paul being arrested in Jerusalem. Then a plot is discovered against him, so he is sent off to Caesarea about 30 or so miles to the northwest along the coast. And he is imprisoned there. He's put on trial before one governor named Felix. Felix decides to not let anything happen to Paul. He's neither allowed to go free and he's neither given to his accusers, the Jews. And so he sits in prison and another governor comes into power two years later. And we saw this last week with Portius Festus, this other governor. And he hears Paul's case, and he too feels the strain of not wanting to upset or anger the Jews on the one hand, but also uh, realizing that Paul Paul is free, and so he can't uh, give him over to the Jews. That would be a bad thing to do for a Roman citizen who has these rights. And so he is feeling a bit stuck as well. And so we've seen sort of in all of this how Paul's case has gotten increasingly more intense. He gets captured at, the, at, at Jerusalem at the temple, and then he is before the tribune, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, who's about to flog him in order to get answers, and Paul sort of whips out his Roman citizenship, and then he is before the Jewish council, they're, they're allowed to figure things out, and then he goes before a governor, and then another governor, and now, sort of the crescendo of it all, he's going to come before the king, Agrippa. Last week, we read right up to verse 22 of chapter 25, where Agrippa says these words, uh, where we see this interaction between Agrippa, the king, the young king, who really wasn't fully in charge yet, and Festus, who was sort of the ruler of the region. So we read this in verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, so the king said to the governor, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Festus promises Agrippa, you'll get, the, you'll get your chance. You'll get to listen to Paul. And so that's where we, we are tonight. We are at that tomorrow. Tomorrow you will hear him. So let's pray for the Lord to bless our reading as we begin. Our God, we come to you, putting all things aside that we may listen to your word, that we may humbly receive it for ourselves tonight, that we may grow in our knowledge of what it teaches so that we too may be faithful like Paul in our own time and place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear now the word of the living God from Acts 25, 23 through 26, 32. And and buckle up because it's a little long, obviously. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord or to the Caesar about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made a defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews." They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme or to renounce Christ, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After a long, excruciating wait of two years, Paul's day had finally come. And as we have just read, he certainly makes the most of it, doesn't he? He stands up and he lets it rip, as it were. If it wasn't clear to you from this reading, I hope I read it uh, properly. I hope I did it justice. If it wasn't clear, what we've just read is some of the most dramatic court uh, stories we've ever read in the old uh, ancient world that are are possible to find. What we've just seen is really high drama of a poor, innocent prisoner standing before these two magistrates who have the power to kill him very, very easy. They have the power of life and death. And so what does this little prisoner do? The man who is standing before them with chains around his arms, what does he do? Well, we see that he stands before them, he stiffens his back, he broadens his shoulders, and he boldly proclaims to them all that the Lord has done in his life. And he talks to them, most importantly, about the unbelievable change of heart and the trajectory in his own story. So as we saw last week, Paul's message all throughout these chapters, the thing that he has brought up again and again and again in all of these court cases and trials is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of those who have died, who will be raised. And he talks a lot about how Jesus is the first fruits in his letters. And so we can assume by this that what he's talking about when he means the resurrection is not just the resurrection as it will be at the day of judgment, but the resurrection that Christ already experienced himself, which is the first fruits or sort of the proof that there will be a resurrection at the end. And so this belief has changed Paul's whole story. And he believes it, of course, because he saw Jesus himself. He's seen him resurrected. And as we saw last week, Paul's life then is its own sort of proof in the resurrection. He had nothing to gain, but everything 
to lose. He lived a life of privilege, and he was upwardly mobile. He was powerful amongst his own people. He was well-educated. He was sort of living a life and well on his way to being a powerful, influential man. But in a twinkling of an eye, on the road to Damascus, everything changes for this man, Paul. And he becomes, in a sense, no longer this man who had everything, but now he's sort of the scum of the earth. And now he's hated and wanted to be killed by many, both Gentile and Jew. And so he had lost it. But tonight we wrap up this portion of the story of Paul's custody, a long story so far. And as we do, we'll... we'll, We'll do what we've been doing for the past several weeks. My sort of MO as I make my way through this is, if you haven't noticed it, is simply to explain the story. My hope in all of this is that you all walk away with a better understanding of the book of Acts, but then also to make some lessons or some observations from the text that we might learn for ourselves today. And so my goal here is very much a teaching sort of goal and less a preaching sort of goal. That's because here at our evening services, the historic tradition, of course, is to do catechesis, is simply to teach. And so we're just going to work our way through Paul's uh, message, his testimony, as I've called it. Um, so as, to, as we start, we can see from the final section of chapter 25 what's really going on here. The whole point of the meeting between Festus and Agrippa was not actually to put Paul on trial. This is not really a court case here that we read about in chapter 26. All it really is is a hearing. It's an opportunity for King Agrippa to hear more from this man Paul. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how King Agrippa was sort of the go-between between the the Roman Empire and the governor of the Judean region and the Jews. And so he had some specific tasks as it regarded the Jews. One of those tasks was to oversee the temple in Jerusalem, but one of the other tasks was to appoint the high priest uh, whenever there needed to be a new high priest. And so in some ways, Agrippa, as Paul sort of points out in his own message, Agrippa knew what Judaism kind of believed and taught. Uh, And we get the sense even from Paul's own words that Paul sort of felt that maybe Agrippa was himself a God-fearing Jew. He was a Jew that, or a God-fearing Gentile, excuse me, a Gentile who was curious in this religion of Judaism. And so we see in these later verses of chapter 25, we get the sense at least that uh, Agrippa's curious, not just because uh, he wants to hear Paul, but he's curious maybe because he's spiritually curious. He's interested. He's surely heard about Paul. Paul has really become this sort of wanted villain. You could almost imagine posters wanted with Paul's face on it. Those didn't exist, of course, but that's sort of the, the environment that the Judean region was. And so that's why when they found Paul in the temple, the uh, violent uh, the violent action of catching him, the riot sort of breaks out, and they seek to kill him. 
And so Agrippa was very likely very curious, at the very least, probably spiritually curious, wanting to hear what this man Paul was all about. And so at the start of chapter 26, then, Agrippa gives Paul the go-ahead. He tells him to speak freely, and Paul wastes no time. This wasn't, again, so much a trial as it was a hearing. And so this means that Paul approaches this one a little bit differently. In the previous trials, we can see that Paul is defending his case. He's trying to prevent himself from being released to the Jews who were intending to kill him. And so here, instead of defending his case so much, he's now giving a testimony. He's really wanting to bring the good news to bear on the situation and on those who hear him. He knows that if he succeeds then in teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ to the king and to the governor of this province, he will do a great deal of good for Christians in this region. He will help greatly advance the cause of Christ. And at least he would open up the opportunity for them to be treated uh, with more respect and more kindness than they had been to up to this point. And so as was customary then, he starts off with kind and respectful words, which was very common in the ancient world, but we can see how Paul does it here in verse 2. He starts in saying, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially, and here you see that, his, that he knows, that Agrippa knows about Judaism and the faith. He says, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so he's saying, I want you to really get my arguments here. Paul is now going to build a case, essentially, for the veracity or the truthfulness of Jesus. And so evidently, Paul knows where Agrippa is in a spiritual way. And he wants to encourage him to understand who Jesus is. And so no wonder he begs him then to listen patiently to listen slowly and carefully to what he has to say. This was Paul's golden opportunity to present the gospel to an influential king. And so to start off his defense, Paul begins in verses 4 through 11 then to essentially explain his background, his upbringing, where he came from. And so whereas in other confrontations earlier in this book, uh, Paul had proclaimed and made much of his Roman citizenship. He'd played that card, which was a fair card to play. Here we see him emphasizing his, his Jewishness, the, the seriousness or the genuineness of his Jewish credentials. And so he places the emphasis on the fact that as a young kid, he grew up in Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, Paul is from Tarsus, not in Jerusalem. It's in the province of Cilicia, which was in Asia Minor, far north and to the west of Judea. But he did move as a young kid. We sort of understand that he moved as a young child with his family to Jerusalem. And so he was raised in Jerusalem amongst the party of the Pharisees, who he calls in verse 5, the strictest party of our religion, which is from all we can tell, very clearly the case. There were other strict parties of Jews that get less of a hearing in the New Testament. One would be, for example, the uh, 
the Essenes who lived off in the mountains. They're the ones from whom the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. But in terms of sort of mainstream Jews, the Pharisees were as strict as it came, far more strict than the Sadducees. But to go even further, he says he was not only a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee that also thought that part of his religious observance, his zeal, ought to be expressed in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which meant that he uh, willingly signed himself up to be the hunter of Christians, as we've seen all throughout this book. And if this wasn't enough, he tells us that he not only hunted them in Jerusalem, but he went well out of his way to other cities to hunt them and extinguish their cause. He thought that this was his duty before God. And so in all of this, the apostle's aim was to vindicate then. What he's trying to do is to vindicate the seriousness or the genuineness of his pre-conversion Judaism. Because if he could establish this, he knows that he could more effectively show the authenticity of his conversion to Christ, which he now dives into in verses 12 through 18. And so in the book of Acts, this story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus actually is the third time in the whole book that this is brought up. And so Some scholars will point this out and say, by Luke including this story for the third time, what he's essentially doing is saying to the readers, to us, listen to this story. This is an important thing. This man, Saul, was changed by the appearance of Christ to him. And so he includes it here, and he wants us to listen up. Paul also wants Agrippa to listen up. And so he wants us to see that God is gracious and loving and kind and forgiving. And so just as he changed Paul's life, so too he can change ours. And so this is surely one of the greatest lessons of the book of Acts. If we consider the legacy of this book throughout the history of the church, we can learn this, that God saved Paul so God can save anybody. That's the good news here for us. This was uh, the fact that Paul uh, wanted to express to Agrippa and Festus. He wanted this to be absolutely clear what God had done in meeting him on the road to Damascus. And so this becomes even clearer as Paul continues into verses 19 through 23, where he really begins to bring home his conclusions here, bring home the, the sort of big points. But before we get there, Uh, Before we get to this, we should also see that Paul had been called to do this by the risen Messiah, the one to whom his Jewish faith had been pointing towards all along. This is what he wants to drive home to Agrippa, who is, who is familiar with Judaism. He wants to drive home that it's this Messiah, the one that the Jewish religion has been pointing forward to, the prophets have been foretelling of. Now he has come, and he is the one who met me on the road to Damascus. And the irony of all of this wouldn't have been lost on Agrippa. Paul is essentially saying, look, I am the true Jew. I'm the one who's been following our customs. Don't let them fool you, in other words. Though they say they are God's people, the Jews, they've rejected him, O king. 
You know how they talk about waiting for the Messiah to come? Well, He has come. And I'm standing before you today to tell you that. He has come and I've met Him. He changed my life. I had no reason to change myself. I had nothing to gain from this. But my life has been changed. And now I've been going around to all the Gentile regions telling them about Jesus. And it hasn't always been easy for me, O King. But when God himself appears to you out of nowhere and blinds you, you have no other choice but to change your life, to listen to him, to obey him. And that's what I've done, O king. That's why I'm here. That is essentially Paul's message in verses 19 through 23. So no doubt Paul was being bold here, but more than that, he was hoping to make a point. And the fact that he made a point, we can see, it's loud and clear from the fact that he gets the reaction that he does from both Festus and Agrippa, who cut him off in the final section of chapter 26, and they stand up, not even letting him finish, and they begin to walk out. We can sort of think of this as royal resistance. Paul makes the message clear to them that this Messiah has come, that he is not a crazy person yet. That's exactly what they say. Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. There's a fun modern word that's been tossed around for the last several years called gaslighting, which is the idea of making someone question their own sanity. And that's essentially what I think Festus is doing here. He's trying to question Paul's sanity. Though you are clearly an educated man, Paul... Your education is driving you mad. You're too smart for your own good. Not to be put, put off by this, Paul calmly responds, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, he says, or reasonable words. These things I'm saying are reasonable. But then he goes even further in verse 28 by enlisting the help of the king, turning now to Agrippa and saying, For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly or freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's not been done sort of out of his view. It's been done in the open. People know what's been going on. Then he says to him, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And so with this, you probably could have heard a pin drop. He asks him this question. He, he goes way out of his, what he probably should have done if he wanted to stay safe. He goes and makes this personal and he puts the magistrate in the hot seat. He begins to increase the pressure on the king in front of everyone. And so for his own part, feeling unsettled and perhaps slightly embarrassed, trying to sort of put the pressure off of himself, Agrippa quickly and cleverly responds, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And so thinking that this probably would have put Paul off and maybe the people who were there were beginning to laugh at this moment. Oh, great response, King Agrippa. Paul doubles down and he leans in and he says to him, holding chains with his hands, whether short or long, I would, t- I would or I wish to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And so unsettled then by these advances, unsettled by his insistence, that's when they storm off. Agrippa, Bernice, which is Agrippa's sister, and Festus. 
And so two quick lessons then come to mind for us. The first is that like Paul, we must recognize that there is a time to get right to the heart of things and to ask the incisive questions, to really get down to the nitty gritty and to lay the question before someone. Do you believe? I know that you believe. And this is what I want you to believe. I would that you would become just as I am, except for these chains. The next lesson from this is that we must also recognize that no matter how good or persuasive or even how educated we are, we do not have the power to save people. Even Paul, the world's leading apostle and evangelist and apologist, the one who could really make a great case for Christ, even he gets someone to storm off and to walk out. He could not officially persuade Festus or Agrippa or Bernice. And so this means that we must change the way we think when we think about what it means to faithfully share the gospel. Faithfully sharing the gospel doesn't mean we'll get the result we're hoping for. Faithfully sharing the gospel doesn't mean that someone will will listen to us and totally agree with everything we say and change their life right then and there. Faithfully sharing the gospel means doing exactly that. Faithfully sharing the gospel. The results are not up to us. Paul could have felt like it was himself to blame. He could have walked away sad for not seeing Agrippa's life change in a moment, but he knew that he had done what he was called to do. And so, as far as Paul's case was concerned, Luke leaves us with the final pronouncement of the governor and the king as they're walking off, probably in a fury, embarrassed, wishing that maybe they could turn this man over now because he has embarrassed them, but knowing that because he's a Roman citizen, they can't. We hear the exchange between them, between these two men. And it's, we, where, it's here that we see the Roman governor and the king, that they, that they know that Paul is legitimately innocent. And so if Paul had not already appealed to Caesar and that had not already been okayed, they would have just let him free. And so we can see the, uh, the mixed feelings that they would have had. They know uh, that he is an innocent man. And we'll see next time then, Paul begins to make his journey to Rome. And things begin to change. The whole story begins to look not so much like a matter of several court cases, one after the other, but now it'll be a sort of an adventure story across the Mediterranean. And I'm looking forward to that. But from here tonight, as we go from here, taking what we've learned about God's grace in the life of Paul and God's love in Christ for us, and even what we've learned from Paul's boldness and his willingness to commend the gospel, We should learn from all of this, even in our day, to have the strength of faith to say to others with these words of Paul, whether it takes me a short time or a long time, I wish to God that not only you, but also all who hear me would become such as I am. What are we? We are rescued, forgiven, saved, children of the living God. And amen and amen. Let's hope and pray that others hear that grace and change as well. Let's pray.